When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 30th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll preview the third consecutive Cavs-Warriors NBA Finals, and we'll be joined for said preview by Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, who is formerly the Warriors beat writer for ESPN. We'll also talk with Charlie Pierce about Frank DeFord, who died on Sunday at age 78. We'll discuss DeFord's long career at Sports Illustrated and his tenure as the editor-in-chief of The National, the daily sports newspaper that opened for business in 1990 and closed in 1991. And we'll talk about our favorite and your favorite non-famous athletes. We'll be joined for that segment by Slate's Dan Ingber, who as a kid was infatuated with a baseball player so non-famous that I think no one on earth shared his obsession. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And I'm very pleased to welcome in from California via Skype, Ethan Strauss. Ethan, you may or may not know, was one of the folks who got laid off by ESPN back in April. And we've very much been missing his voice and his words during the NBA playoffs. So, Ethan, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to be on. I've I've got a lot of takes, a lot of takes stored up. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So, Ethan, after a deep dive into the Wikipedia entry list of film series with three entries. I discovered that the third movie in the trilogy, often it goes direct to video. Think Beverly Hills Chihuahua 3, Viva La Fiesta. Another mm, option is that to- was an injustice. <laughs> another option is to send the Bad News Bears to Japan. But for me- Watched it. The best analogy for adding Kevin Durant to the mix in Cavs Warriors 3 <laughs> Is Mary Steenburgen coming on board for Back to the Future 3, the one where they went to the Old West? The lesson Mm. here is that when you do research, even if it turns out that your analogy makes no sense, just roll with it and hopefully people won't notice. Um, So you're saying Kevin Durant (laughs) is Mary Steenburgen. He is in Cavs Warriors 3. Uh, The Warriors beat the Cavs in 2015. Uh, You might have heard the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead to Cleveland and LeBron James in the 2016 finals. 
And now Golden State has Durant slash Steenburgen and home court advantage. They're very well rested after having swept their first three series. The Warriors are a big favorite in this series going into Thursday night's game one. Um, Ethan, they have been primed. At least Draymond Green has been primed (laughs) for this series for a very long time. He said in April that he wanted to annihilate the Cavs. How much attention did the Warriors pay to the regular season and how much were they thinking ahead? I, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that Draymond said that he wanted to annihilate Cleveland, as is in the city of Cleveland, <laughs> like a like a supervillain. I think that might have been uh, that might have been the extent of his his rage. Obviously, they've been uh, thinking a lot about it. I thought that Marcus Thompson had a great article on uh, the night after losing Game Seven um, and the drive home and how Steph. Steph Curry smoked a lonely, depressing cigar, which is an Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. How sad. Very sad. That's what he said. The rare non-victory cigar. That's what he observed. It's it's very rare. Uh, I, I guess if you're a cigar aficionado, maybe that's how one copes. I, I don't know. I'm not a cigar smoker, but just picture a sad uh, Steph Curry smoking a lonely cigar, probably in a darkened room. So uh, there's been a long drum roll uh, to where we are right now. The NBA season is overly long. I think at points the Warriors have been bored. The Cavs obviously have been bored. And yeah, there's a little bit of the old uh, the old redemption, right? The old redemption uh, narrative. And also they're going to get crushed if they lose. That's the other thing. The Warriors are going to get absolutely crushed if they lose the series. Right. And if there's a narrative this year, it's that that the Warriors remain so much better than everybody else in the perception of most observers that losing this would be as much a repudiation of the Warriors' purported dynasty and greatness as it would be a validation of LeBron's all-time greatness. Okay. So on the floor, what are you most interested in seeing the NBA regular season was too long, but there was at least one good game, which was the Christmas game <laughs> that Kyrie won um, on a fadeaway with three seconds to go. The Cavs won by one point. Um, what are the matchups in this series that are going to be most interesting and what should we look for um, on the floor from both teams? Well, first of all, that that was not only a great game, that Christmas Day game, but it also might have been the turning point for the Warriors, where Steph was more vociferous about his objections to the way the offense was being run, which you never see from him. He's so go-along, get-along, and he voiced concerns about there not being enough pick-and-roll, and Kerr actually called out uh, his decision-making in that particular game, and there was a little bit of drama right there, and it seemed as though the offense changed from that point forward, and Steph got more involved. But circling back to this particular series and your question as to the matchups, the main focus for me is that 1-3 or 3-1 pick-and-roll on both sides, really, because that was the main weapon for the Cavs to fatigue Steph, the idea behind it is that LeBron is a he's a small forward, unlike any other small forward. Uh, the size of a power forward handles like a point guard, and you can continue to target uh, Steph Curry on defense and try to force the switch in pick and roll and make Steph guard LeBron or make the Warriors uh, get into a difficult situation where maybe they're trying to hedge that pick and roll. 
And I think it really wore Steph down. Now, he's, he's a better defensive player than given credit for. I'd even say that Steph Curry is a good defensive player, but he's not going to be able to guard LeBron James. And sometimes he overcompensates by getting handsy. If you recall in that particular series, uh, he kept getting into foul trouble. He kept trying to stand his ground against LeBron, reaching in, picking up fouls. He fouled out of uh, game six, if memory serves. So I want to know how the Warriors are going to handle that defensively. I know in talking to them, uh, they said that the pretty stuff didn't work and the Cavs beat them with more of this rock-headed, simple pick-and-roll approach. And if they have anything for that, I'd be curious to see it. And on the other side, the Warriors uh, won 3 or 3-1 pick-and-roll. They didn't do that well with it early in the season uh, with Kevin Durant screening for Steph Curry. In theory, it's an unstoppable play uh, in practice for at least much of the season. And I haven't tracked it lately, uh, mainly because I've been hiking with my dog and chilling. Uh, but <laughs> it didn't work that well uh, in large part because Durant is a bad screen setter. He's one of the worst screen setters I've ever seen. Um, maybe he's gotten better at that. Maybe they're saving it for this particular moment. But how the Warriors might use the 1-3 pick and roll on the big stage, that is of interest to me. Who guards Kevin Durant? Is it LeBron for as much as he can stand it? Because that's an exhausting assignment. And if LeBron is the hardest cover in the NBA, then Kevin Durant is, you know, 1A. He's not He's not number two. Definitely. And I think you'll see a lot of LeBron on KD like you saw in that first time back when Durant was on the Thunder in that finals. And the way it went was that LeBron guarded Durant effectively. And when Durant guarded LeBron, he tended to get in foul trouble. Now, that was a long time ago. So maybe Durant has gotten better at that. But I, I believe you'll see uh, not not exclusively, of course, uh, LeBron on KD, but I think you'll see a lot of LeBron on KD. And that is a that, that is a tough cover. But at the same time with Durant, there's something almost automated about him. He's so efficient, but it's not as though the approach is that fatiguing or unusual. It's a lot of pin down screens, a lot of mid range. He's uh, terrific in transition, but I don't know. I can't speak to on a personal level. I've never guarded Kevin Durant, but I'm not sure if it's uniquely fatiguing relative to other superstars. Steve Kerr, the head coach of the Warriors, uh, remains sidelined uh, with his uh, serious back injuries and, and his inability to recover from that, at least to the point where he can sit on the sidelines during the game. I mean, Kerr shaped this team, created the image of this team. He is given this team and really this entire organization, this this patina of maturity and intelligence and sort of laid back perspective. There are things more important going on in life than throwing a basketball through a hoop, but we're going to go out and try to win a championship anyway. How much does his absence, how much has it affected the team? I've read that he's been going to meetings and going to film sessions, talking to the team before and even during and after the games, um, but his absence is pronounced. Um, it, it's a very dark situation and an unfortunate situation. There was a little humor in it, I thought, just in the Portland series where Steph, ever the good soldier, gave Kerr the game ball and said all these great things about him. And then in that same, uh, after that that same game in the press conference, uh, Draymond, who's had his battles with uh, Kerr, immediately launched in to what an incredible coaching job Mike Brown had done and breaking it down <laughs> on a granular level. Unlike I'd ever seen him praise Kerr. Uh, I think that it obviously has to affect them, but 
a lot of what Kerr has done is more foundational than active. I mean, what's harder, building a car or driving a car? Obviously, it's uh, building a car. I think in many ways, Kerr built the way this offense functions and how egalitarian it is relative to the more pick and roll, pick and roll Mark Jackson offense. And that that vaulted them from a pretty good team to an all-time great team. At, at the same time, even though I think that Kerr's presence is important, I think that Mike Brown theoretically can shepherd this, uh, shepherd this through, or at least Warren Legary, the uh, famous oozing with personality coach's agent who uh, represents Mike Brown, has to be rooting for that. That would be a, a big win for Warren Legary. I know everybody is listening to this because they're <laughs> wild wild about Warren Legary, but that would be a huge win for Warren Legary if Mike Brown, who's positioned into this uh, into this spot, wins an NBA championship and gets a, a fat contract for another team. In October, you wrote um, a piece with the headline, Golden State's Draymond Green Problem, the premise of which was that he was the guy who gave the Warriors their edge, and he was also the guy who could threatened to rip the team apart, you know, whatever whatever metaphor you want to use um, was the train that could go off the rails. What is your assessment now, I guess seven months later, about how the Draymond problem has resolved itself, whether it's still there, and how that dynamic has played out on the team this season? Well, I, I think he's had a great season, uh, maybe his best defensive season yet. I, I also think he's still the same guy. So if you remember in that uh, Christmas Day game, he almost got kicked out uh, just at the very beginning of that game. And I was almost surprised that, that, that he wasn't uh, because he just went crazy on the refs as he was going uh, going to the sidelines. So there's still always that risk that Draymond does something that now you have the confirmation bias too, right? And he certainly says that he's a target and he certainly feels that way where if he does something on the line, the league is going to uh, maybe not take the kindest view of it. So that's a funny thing to try to factor into this matchup. We don't talk about this with the matchups, but the uh, will Draymond get suspended for something? I don't know. I think about it. It's possible, but I don't question his ability to play well. That's not something that I question. I believe that he'll be a great asset in this series and that uh, he'll play quite well. And um, he just continues to be the same guy, someone who is an incredible basketball player, probably even underrated, but his strengths seem to be indivisible from his weaknesses. And that's just who he is. And that's the bargain they've uh, struck. Well, the other critical relationship on this team this year has been between Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. And you wrote a long piece for ESPN, one of your last pieces for ESPN, I believe, uh, that was headlined, The Only Man Who Can Stop Steph. How did you view or how have you viewed the way their on-court uh, dynamic has evolved over the course of the season? And is it peaking at the right time now? I think that it's evolved and it's been better in the playoffs. And obviously the Warriors are at their best when both are playing. It's just on an individual level. It didn't seem as though Durant's presence was making, uh, making Steph better. Maybe some of the ways you would have expected. And that goes back to the conversation on how the pick and roll between the two of them wasn't what you expected. But I'm in some ways a little more fascinated by the off court dynamic where this has been an immense sacrifice of fame and status from Steph 
for Durant, and I guess also some sacrifice and status uh, from Durant. I know I know Durant did not appreciate that particular article uh, that I wrote, and part of the reason might be because he feels as though he sacrificed for winning as as well, and it wasn't just Steph. But from what I've heard. A lot of Durant coming to the Warriors had already been set in motion. It had already been decided upon, and everybody was just waiting for one thing. And that one thing was Steph Curry's say-so. He had to ultimately make that decision. He had to make that choice that I don't believe has been discussed enough because it's very unusual and a lot of superstars wouldn't have done it. And the consequence uh, has been tangible. Uh, Under Armour... The brand Steph is uh, represents a multi-billion dollar brand has taken a big hit. Stock price went down. Uh, shoe sales have uh, have declined with Durant in Golden State. And yet at the same time, it seems that the dynamic has been fairly copacetic and that Steph uh, in many ways has embraced that loss of status for the greater good. So it's something that I think uh, he deserves a measure of credit for of what we're judging players on is their devotion to trying to win and win sustainably. Last thought for me is that the thing that we haven't seen in the playoffs from either team really is how they respond under stress. We saw that a little bit in the regular season from the Warriors. You alluded to it before, Ethan, that in crunch time in a tie game or down by one, what do you do? Who gets the ball? Do you run your normal stuff? Do you ISO Durant? Um, So there's that kind of on-court dynamic of what happens when you're under stress. But just with both of these teams and how they've really waltzed through the playoffs so far, um, none of their opponents really seem to believe that they could when there wasn't a Draymond Green on the court challenging Cleveland or challenging LeBron, either like at the rim or kind of <laughs> emotionally or anything. And or so, in the nuts. <laughs> in, in any part of the body, the brain or, or <laughs> otherwise. So that I think is what these teams have been waiting for. And that's what we have been waiting for is just like what is going to happen when these two teams – get on the floor and they are finally challenged. And for the Warriors, I think it's more interesting because Stefan said this before. I don't like the notion that LeBron's legacy is sealed and there's nothing that he can you know, do to taint that because obviously he's going to get roasted if they lose unfairly. But it's the Warriors and Durant who are really going into this series having to prove that the hype for the last couple of years is justified. I'm just fascinated to see how they respond and what that looks like on the floor and off. Yeah. And that's a great point to raise. And that's why I'm excited. And also as an aside, when you talked about the Warriors waltzing uh, through the playoffs, I just envisioned Draymond Green waltzing for whatever reason, which would be a good (laughs) celebration, a good taunting celebration if ever he wants to uh, go that direction. But if I had a criticism of the Warriors this season, it has been what's happened under pressure. They haven't looked sharp under pressure in the very few moments of it that they've had. They haven't had a lot because they've been blowing teams out of the water. Yeah, they haven't had much practice. 
<laughs> yes, they haven't had much practice. And Kerr has said this, that they do this egalitarian motion offense because they want to get everybody involved. And uh, they believe that it's galvanizing for everybody to be involved. But at the end of games, they're not going to go with that. They don't believe in that at the end of games because they think, and who knows what the statistical studies might bear out if somebody really dug into this deeply, but they believe that there's so much holding and clutching and grabbing that that egalitarian motion off-ball offense doesn't work as well. So you need to go with the simple stuff. You need to go with the more deliberate pick and roll, something with less of a flow. And I'm not sure if they've clearly demonstrated their effectiveness with that. And I'm not sure that they've been pushed and they've been tested. So maybe, just maybe, uh, my criticism or that concern that I've raised will just never matter. Maybe they'll win each of these games by 20, but I can't wait. I can't wait if they get into a scenario again, a pressure pack scenario like the end of game seven of last year's finals, because I'm not sure what's going to happen, just like you're not sure what's going to happen. And that's why it's going to be such great, great drama. Ethan Strauss, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, send uh, our regards to your dog, and hopefully <laughs> the finals are not going to disrupt the uh, the hiking schedule too much. Otto, hang up and listen. Sends uh, <laughs> sends its regards. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Evan. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. See ya. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our conversation about Frank DeFord, I want to give a heads up about our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week. In that segment, we're going to keep the conversation rolling about some of our listeners' favorite non-famous athletes. And Stefan and I will share our own. At least I will. Will you share, Stefan? I'll share. If you want to hear that, please join Slate Plus for just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. You might know Frank DeFord from his commentaries on NPR's Morning Edition, or the stories he reported for HBO's Real Sports, or the books he wrote, or the beer commercial he starred in. But DeFord, who died at his home in Key West on Sunday at age 78, made his biggest mark on the profession of sports writing and on sports commentary at Sports Illustrated, where he worked from 1962 onward with a nine-year interregnum from 1989 to 1998 that included a stint presiding over the daily sports newspaper, The National. DeFord was known for what SI called bonus pieces, long takeout stories on places and things, and particularly uh, people. He wrote profiles of Jimmy Connors and Bobby Knight and Bill Russell and Bob Bull Cyclone Sullivan, the toughest coach there ever was. In a 2016 interview with The Ringer's Brian Curtis, DeFord explained his approach to sports writing. And what he would do if assigned a story on NASCAR or the NBA? I'll leave the, the explaining NASCAR to the guys who understand what carburetors are. I don't get into carburetors. I don't get into pick and rolls. <laughs> um, th that's that's the expert's job. I'm content 
to try to show where sports fits in our lives, in our culture. And, you know, sports is part of every culture in the world. I mean, it, it, it really is. It's just much of our lives as, as music and, and art and dance. Uh, it's just that because it's so sweaty and because it's competitive, it's not considered as serious an art as the others, which is a shame because I think that it fits right into that category. Joining us now is Charlie Pierce. He worked at the National under Frank DeFord. He writes about sports for Sports Illustrated and about politics for Esquire. Hey, Charlie. Hey, how's everybody? Uh, we're good. And I'm curious, you grew up reading DeFord in Sports Illustrated. What made him a great writer? Well, I mean, there's an entire generation of sports writers who grew up reading the Sports Illustrated produced by the late, great Andre Laguerre, who was as, who reinvented American magazines as surely as, you know, say, Willie Morris did at Harper's or Harold Evans did at Esquire or Art Cooper did at GQ. I mean, that was a formative experience for a lot of us. And to me, the two pole stars of the SI experience were Dan Jenkins and, 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 and Frank DeFord, who came from decidedly different angles into the sports world, but completely unique to themselves and completely eccentric in their own way. And, of course, Frank was, you know, Frank was the gold standard for writing long, involved profiles. I mean, what, you know, they really were bonus pieces because they were bonuses for the reader. And, you know, he, he, he became one of, the, one of the most conspicuous people to aspire to. And I think basically what, what he just said in that, that clip you played uh, was true. He, he, he taught you how to look at the people who play the games as artists and in a different way. I want to quote two other people who uh, worked with and admired uh, Frank DeFord. One is our friend Scott Price, who I think is uh, the Sports Illustrated legacy currently at the magazine, who does the kind of work that Frank allowed people to do. And he said what DeFord meant to him was he taught writers to be able to handle sports with a literate and critical mindset, write in an adult narrative prose, approach it as a valuable human endeavor like painting or music without being slobbering jock sniffers. And then Sally Jenkins, Dan Jenkins' daughter, who, of course, is a columnist for The Washington Post, pointed out what to her was Frank's enduring contribution and his brilliance was that you always came away liking his subjects for their flaws, not in spite of them. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go entirely all the way to say liking them, but certainly understanding them as human yeah. beings, understanding them as something beyond the, the, you know, the caricatures that, that modern media will make, you know, will make out of anyone who's a celebrity. Uh, certainly, I, I mean, I, ne I never found Bob Knight likable, but I understood him more after I read Frank. I never particularly found Jimmy Connors likable, but I understood him after I read Frank. I can't say I liked or disliked Cyclone Sullivan or, mm -hmm. or Bull Sullivan there because I never heard of the guy until Frank wrote him. Or Howard Cosell, for that matter. Or even Howard brilliant. Cosell. I don't, I don't remember. I, 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 somehow I missed Frank's piece on Howard Cosell. And a lot of people are citing it. I've never read it, which is bizarre because I read practically everything else Frank wrote. You know, he brought you to places. His classic piece on Billy Kahn and his wife, the boxer from Pittsburgh. That's a piece about Pittsburgh as much as it's about Billy Kahn. Uh, you know, Irvy the Traveling Whale was about the whole country. That was Frank's On the Road. That was Frank's, you know, Travels with Charlie, except it was about a guy with a whale who would bring it to small towns and amaze the locals. There were um, 
different types of bonus pieces um, into Ford's day and afterwards. There were the ones where, you know, you would write about the roller derby or about a whale or you would write about Bobby Knight and get closer than, um, you know, the guys at the sports page would. Was there a particular type of piece, um, you know, either of those categories, Charlie, that you thought Frank truly excelled at or was it just he brought different skills to bear on both? Well, I'm, I'm a sucker for great writing about places. I love doing it myself and I love the way Frank did it. So I, as much as I liked his profiles, and I think the Jimmy Connors profile, Raised by Women to Conquer Men, is as good a magazine profile on any subject as ever has been written. It's right up there with Gay Talese on Frank Sinatra. I mean, it, it's that compelling a story. But I liked Irvy the Whale, and I liked the fact that he wrote a piece a long time ago called Who Are the Hub Men? about Boston, about Boston's unique place in, in, in sports fandom. And this, he wrote this in the late 60s. Bill Russell was still playing for the Celtics at that point. Kevin White was still, a, you know, the, the rising young Democratic politician mayor. Uh, you know, I, I liked the Harlem Globetrotters. I mean, I, you know, Frank's attempt to be a Harlem Globetrotter. And he always encouraged us to do that at the National. He, he, I never got a story turned down at the National. If I wanted to spend... 10 days with Abe Lemons down in, in Oklahoma City traveling, driving to NAIA basketball games. I got to do it. You know, he taught us to immerse ourselves not only in the subjects we were writing about, but also in, in the places and circumstances in which they lived their lives. And before we get to the National, I want to add, ask you one more question and, and, and bring up one other story that Frank DeFord wrote, which was a piece called Kenny Dying Young that was published in Sports Illustrated in 1981. And it's not really about sports. It's about a high school athlete who becomes paralyzed in a bar fight and who goes into the woods and kills himself. It is the most tangential piece about sports that I think possibly has ever been published in that magazine. And yet there is something so moving and so explanatory about why we care about sports and how they shape people's lives. And I think if DeFord was great. If you had to single out one of the many things that Frank DeFord was terrific at, it was his ability to create these emotional portraits and to get inside the subject's heads through really incredible reporting. Yeah, he he does not get enough credit for being the reporter that he was. That's absolutely true because his prose was so elegant and he himself was such a larger-than-life figure, quite literally in every way, that his gift as a reporter, his, his, his reporter's eye, is perennially underrated. And I would say the same thing about Dan Jenkins, by the way. As I said, coming from a completely different angle. But, you know, Dan had this wonderful Texan persona that permeated his writing. Dan was also a hell of a reporter. And, you know, most of, most, most of reporting is the ability to see things other people don't and hear things in a different way. And that's what Frank had. Brian Curtis noted in his piece uh, about DeFord on The Ringer that he extracted one of the all-time great sports quotes from Tommy Heinsohn and his piece on Bill Russell, which was oh, Russell this the, won. This is the Ted Williams tunnel piece? Yeah. Russell won 11 championships in 13 years and Boston named a fucking tunnel after Ted Williams. <laughs> well, for, for, you know, that Frank was very close to those late era Russell teams. He was doing the NBA beat. He spent a lot of time up here. He became very close to Russell, which was extremely hard to do. Yeah, you know, Frank never worked for a newspaper. That was one of the things about him that, that I always found hilarious. Uh, I think he did one year as a copy boy or something in Baltimore while he was in high school. But 
if Frank was ever a beat writer, it was for the, the late 60s NBA, and particularly with those yeah. Celtics teams. So your um, colleague at Sports Illustrated, Alex Wolf, had a pretty good capsule description of the National. He wrote, in a quixotic interlude as editor of the short-lived Sports Daily, the National, he drew down the account of a Mexican billionaire to hire a raft of talented peers, pay them handsomely, and turn them loose as concrete a statement in defense of sports writing as anything he could have written or said. Looking at it in the in the uh, in, in over the year, you know, at, in, at a distance now, it was pretty quixotic of us, but it was also the best job I ever had, and it was a hell of a lot of fun. And Alex is absolutely right. Frank and I, you know, as as writers, I think come to an extent from a different part of the jungle. But I remember him once saying to me that he thought that the National was going to be uh, college your college newspaper without all the assholes. And I said to him, Frank, I was one of them. And they were the only people I know who have jobs now. But I know what he meant. And, it, and basically, I mean, the, from a purely mercenary standpoint, the, the national was the Kurt Flood decision of sports writing. It created the phenomenon of sports writers having, having a lucrative free agent option to them. And a lot of people who didn't go to the national did very well by it anyway, because they were able to wring, you know, really good deals out of the papers they were at at the moment. But we, I mean, we all felt we were on, you know, we, we, we were sailing on a different kind of ship and, and maybe, you know, it wasn't particularly seaworthy, but we enjoyed our time there. Well, you were. I mean, this was a, a venture that had these incredibly grand aspirations. The Mexican billionaire's point was that other countries have daily sports newspapers. Why doesn't the United States? Why can't this succeed here? And when DeFord and all of you came aboard, the mission wasn't just to put out a daily paper with box scores, it was to do something dramatically different. You know, a 4,000 word bonus every day. Yeah, that was uh, that was myself and John yeah. Howard and Ian Thompson and Peter Richmond right. uh, working under Rob Flater and David Granger, who became my editor for the ensuing 30 years, just about. Again, we never got turned down for an assignment. We parceled out the sports. Nobody there liked hockey, so I got to write, or so Johnette and I got to write all the hockey pieces. I never fought anybody over a baseball piece, but you know we 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 were we were dedicated to showing that this thing could be done, and we, a lot of it was you know was launched without. I mean, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to launch a newspaper without a marketing plan, but we did it, yeah. or a circulate or a circulation strategy. But we did it. You know, I think at the very least, we gave something. To the people who came along later, as the internet exploded, we gave them something to shoot for. We gave them a, a, a kind of template, at least in the product, that they could aspire to. Well, the, the downfall was was the lack of a business plan. There was no distribution. There was no way to print the damn thing. The satellites <laughs> didn't always work. Um, DeFord, in uh, a uh, oral history of the National that Grantland did before it went out of business... <laughs> Said, I never well, really didn't quite go out, go of, out business. of business. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Before it was shut down. Uh, DeFord said, I never really got to be an editor at the National. I spent most of my time as a front man, as liaison between business and editorial. Did you get that sense when you were working there? I mean, how absolutely. much was DeFord? A, 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 yeah. Absolutely. And I thank God for that. <laughs> because? Beca because Frank, for all his gifts as a writer and all his gifts with the language and all his gifts as a, as a, as a, as probably the most decent and humane person I've ever met in, in, in journalism. He was no editor. I mean, he, 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 could, he, he could see a piece and understand what was good and bad about it. But, for example, he relentlessly fought 
Rob Slater, our editor, had to relentlessly fight against Frank and the other editors of the paper to keep the space that was the main event. Because Frank had a tendency to emphasize with everyone. And so if you got to him at a certain point in the day, he would try to take the main event space away, and then Rob would have to go in there and bite him on the leg. He was far more than a front man, though. I mean, that, that, that's not, that's, and he's being entirely unfair to himself. He was the guy that you hired to be the living embodiment of the product. How do you explain his sort of dandyish persona? Because when we think about someone who's able to extract such great information from his subjects, I think, I mean, maybe this is wrong, but like of somebody who blends in and is a fly on the wall. Frank DeFord was no fly on anybody's wall. And I had the, and I had the same I had the same impression about George Plimpton too. How did these two guys in particular in the 60s and 70s and 80s manage to do that? Well, I think in both Plimpton and in Frank's case, it was their willingness to be around and to be themselves. One of the things about dealing with athletes at that level is that they can spot, because they're, they're inundated by phonies, they can spot one a mile away. And whatever Frank was, he was not a phony. That, I mean, the, the clothes, the purple ties, the purple ink, all of that was genuine. He was, he was in his own way very Southern, even though he, you know, he grew up in Maryland on the border. He was in his own way a very Southern person. And he dressed like it, and he talked like it. And, you know, I mean, he had this, that same gift of being authentic that Plimpton had and that Tom Wolfe had. I mean, the white suits didn't exactly blend in with Junior Johnson either. <laughs> uh, fair enough. What was the deal with how much he hated soccer? Like his... I, I, I don't know. See, that was a great thing. When, in his latter years, when he started working for NPR, Frank developed this curmudgeonly streak, which yeah. I never knew he had in him, and which certainly did not appear in his writing that often. And one of the things he got, I remember he went to Cameroon the one year the National existed to cover the, because Cameroon was making this wonderful run through the World Cup. Right. And he went to Cameroon to write about it and wrote a terrific piece about being in this athletic club in Cameroon, watching the Cameroonians play. But then he got to be this, this commentator and he developed this curmudgeonly streak and he really got, you know, a hair across his well-tailored ass about soccer. And I never <laughs> understood why. I mean, I'm not a big fan either. And I kid Bill Littlefield on only a game about his enthusiasm all the time. But Frank really seemed to find it insulting. The hair across his well-tailored ass edition <laughs> of Hang Up and Listen. I'm going to finish up because um, you're such a fan of this story about Irvy the Whale, Charlie. I'm just going to yeah. read a few paragraphs from that piece. And away we go. The people wave in the passing cars and Jerry pulls his horn in acknowledgement, although he is never quite sure whether they are greeting little Irvy or Old Blue, since both are one of a kind. Little Irvy is the only and the ugliest traveling whale in the world. Old Blue is the most beautiful truck in the world. All shades of blue, powder and azure and deep royal, the prize of the interstates, a glorious galleon tossing along the swells of the highways. Just the thought of it all makes Jerry break into song sometimes, as he does now, shifting through some of his 16 gears down through the crest of a hill. Little Irvy, Little Irvy, colossal and frozen. What a show. Little Irvy and Old Blue, they're always on the go. <laughs> if, if that's not America, I don't know what is. A guy driving his, his customized 18-wheeler with a frozen whale in the back so the children can be amazed. That's what, that was the kind of thing that drew Frank. To, I mean, Frank was very distinctly an American writer. And... He had a very American voice. There was nothing about him that, that seemed mannered or, or continental. And my God, that's good writing. <laughs> Charlie Pierce writes uh, sports for Sports Illustrated and politics 
for Esquire. Thanks so much, Charlie. Thank you, guys. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On Twitter and on our Facebook page on Monday, I posed a question to our listeners. Who is your favorite non-famous athlete and why? A whole bunch of you wrote in, and we'll get to our favorites of your favorites coming up in a bit. But when I wrote that question, I was thinking of my friend Dan, who, like me, was a New York Mets fan growing up and was a fan of one player in particular, the correct Met to be a fan of, as I know personally, is Howard Johnson, because he had the cool (laughs) nickname Hojo and a really sweet mustache. But that's my guy. Joining us now to talk about his guy is Dan Ingber, who's a columnist for Slate. Hey, Dan. Hi. So tell us, who is your all-time favorite athlete, and how did you come to fancy him? It's Keith Allen Miller, utility player for the New York Mets in the late 80s and early 90s, and a friend of Howard Johnson's, even to this day, as I know, for reasons that maybe we'll discuss later. I came to love Keith in the 1987 season when he came up in that June and played for about two weeks, went 19 for 51. He betted 373. He was incredible. Then he injured himself sliding headfirst into third base and was out for the rest of the season. He came back at the very end of like at the end of September in 87. And the season was over. And I just thought, this is the most exciting baseball player I've ever seen. And also one of the best. I mean, he batted 373. And I imagine that that's how he would perform for the rest of his Mets career. Didn't quite happen that way. But um, my favorite manifestation of your Keith Miller fandom is that you had a VHS tape where you exclusively taped Keith Miller highlights. And you wore, did you wear this tape out? <laughs> Yeah. So I decided I needed to create a Keith Miller highlight film. He would play here and there on the Mets until 89 when the Mets traded away both of their center fielders, uh, Lenny Dykstra and Mookie Wilson, rapid succession. And so then Keith Miller sort of mysteriously ended up the starting center fielder for the Mets. And that's when I decided I would record every single one of his at-bats. And what I, but I wanted only to have like the greatest moments of Keith Miller's season. So after every pitch, if nothing good happened, I'd rewind the tape and start recording again for the next pitch. So it was a really laborious project. But the end result is this amazing, as you say, worn out video cassette that I still have. I still have a VCR, which I use mostly for watching my Keith Miller highlight film video cassette. And it's just Keith Miller getting hit after hit after hit. (laughs) It's amazing. Let's be clear now. How old were you when you were doing this? Because I think context is important in terms of uh, how we end up choosing the athletes that we adore. 
Uh, okay, so I was 11 when Keith first was called up to the majors, and my Keith Miller fandom continued for um, 30 years after that. <laughs> and, and, and what qualities that Keith Miller brought to the game of baseball do you think attracted you to him? Well, I mean, part, so part of this uh, is just there's a thing that happens when like a young player gets called up and, and is just so good. Like remember Kevin Moss? Um, Distinctly. (laughs) So I, I mean, one part of it is just, he was so good. And then it's like the, the, you know, the, the camera of my fandom kept rolling after that when everyone else realized he wasn't actually good. Um, So that, that was part of it. He was just, playing really really well but the way he played also he was like he got a lot of triples which was my favorite form of hit (laughs) and then he also got a lot of bunt singles which was my second favorite form of base hit and he would like always slide head first scrappy i think is the word (laughs) he was a scrappy gritty player and just super fun to watch like he'd stretch singles into doubles like i remember on my highlight film vhs one of my favorite parts is when he hits like a soft line drive to left field von hayes lazily fields the ball and suddenly miller is like turning it into a double so that sort of thing he was a proto Eckstein, is what you're trying to tell us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing that I find really fascinating about just the, the broader phenomenon of rooting for a non-famous athlete is the idea that, you know, Dan, you and I grew up in different places, but we have this sort of shared connection of being fans of those Mets teams and can have this shared kind of vocabulary about what the, you know, what happened in 86 or what happened in 88. But when you root for somebody that nobody else roots for, you are the only Keith Miller fan. It's just an entirely different experience of fandom that just totally abandons the community aspect which is such a big part of why we follow these games. So what was that experience like? And what has it been like that the guy that you most associate with your fandom and why you love sports is somebody that nobody else can really relate to? Just to give you a sense of how anonymous he is as a, a Major League Baseball player, I, I Googled Keith Miller yesterday. I was preparing I was <laughs> for this. I wanted to read some old articles, game stories about Keith Miller's exploits. When you Google him, you know how Google has that sort of instant answer on the yeah. first page of the results? So it, it lists some basic facts about Keith Miller, and then it has a photo of someone who's not Keith Miller. <laughs> <laughs> It has a photo of the other Keith Miller, Keith Miller from the Phillies. So yes, this is not a a well-known player. And I think it is, that was part of the appeal at the time. And I think even at age 11, 12, 13, I was aware of, it was unclear to others and maybe to me at times whether I liked Keith Miller ironically or in a genuine way. And I, I think it was sort of like a combination where like Keith Miller was a, was an underdog style baseball player. I mean, the, the way he played, the way he got to the majors and then the way his career proceeded after he was made the starting center fielder of the Mets. I mean, he was just really, really bad in center field. That was not his natural position. He's a second baseman. And so he was just mocked by Mets fans on WFAN all the time for his terrible fielding. So 
I think it started as like, oh, this is this awesome baseball player. I love him. I love the way he plays, too. I kind of related to him as an underdog. And so the fact that no one else liked him maybe stood in for the fact that uh, no one liked me. <laughs> <laughs> that, is dar- that got really dark. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think he appealed to my nerdy outsiderdom. And... Uh, it helped that no one else was a fan. It was like my, my guy, like I yes, go to Shea Stadium. That's the most important thing. It's our ability that we, we want to identify. We want to relate. We want to have this connection and feel like it is completely personal. I mean, it is sort of Travis Bickley, but you know, there's, <laughs> there, there is something very human about wanting to, you know, in, in the sea of fans, you know, 50,000 people in a stadium. I want to know that I'm different from everybody else. So before we get to our listeners, uh, favorite non-famous athletes, the Travis Bickley reference from Stefan invites the question, what was it like when you met Keith Miller? (laughs) (laughs) Um, How scared was he? (laughs) I I have never met Keith Miller in person. However, on – when I got married as a wedding gift, my brother tracked down Keith Miller and convinced Keith to call me. And when Keith did call me, I just refused to believe it was the real Keith Miller. I was certain that it was like a practical joke and it was one of my brother's friends. So I quizzed Keith on like all of these obscure facts about his background, his <laughs> favorite song by the band Little Feet. Um, that was on the back of a baseball card? No, no, I had I had heard him call into a radio station and request the song Texas Twister. So then I went out and bought that Little Feet album and listened to Texas Twister over and over again. So yeah, that that must have been weird. But I I have to say Keith was so nice and so generous with his time. I mean, I guess he doesn't get a lot of uh, requests like this, but you know, it's one of these things where Josh, I remember you and I talking about this. The cliche is you you meet your boyhood hero and he's kind of a jerk. Like I met my boyhood hero and he was way nicer than I expected him to be. It was incredible. And he just seemed like genuinely pleased as punch. He's, we emailed afterwards and he wrote me an email back after I sent him something I'd once written about him. <laughs> and he, he wrote, that is one of the neatest things I've ever seen or has ever been said about me, five exclamation points, made my day, three exclamation points, thanks, two exclamation points, so glad we got a chance to meet, good luck with the wedding. And that's how he talked <laughs> when we spoke on the phone as well. So that kind of personal connection in looking through the responses that we got from our listeners, a lot of people became fans of athletes because they like met someone and they were really nice. I don't know if you saw in the spreadsheet, Dan, that somebody had a really good experience with Mets non-star Tim Tuffle. Also a friend of Keith Miller's. (laughs) This listener wrote in to us and said, Went through baseball cards using hometown on back of the card. I called information. Tim's was the only number listed. Called him. It was actually his uncle and aunt's house. Developed relationship. Great family. Tim left us tickets to Mets games in the family section. He's my favorite player ever. Also a Ty Cobb-like 444 in 1986 World Series. Can I just say that it's these small acts of humanity that make the connection between us fans and these athletes whom we view as unapproachable, 
so important. And my little story was during the 1977 World Series, I went to batting practice at Yankee Stadium. It was Yankees-Dodgers. Dusty Baker hit a line drive into the stands, and I stupidly stuck my hand out, thinking I would catch the ball. I did have a program in my hand, so I thought that might deflect it, and the ball would fall at my feet. It did not. It hit me on the wrist, and I was in fucking pain. And I'm right at the railing down the third base line, and this Yankee comes over, and he sticks a ball in my hand, and he says, squeeze that, it'll feel better. And it was a guy named Del Alston who had like 60 <laughs> at-bats in 1978, but instantly became one of my favorite baseball players of all time. Another story like that that um, a listener sent to us was about a Texas Rangers player named Mario Diaz. I was in high school in Dallas at the time, and this light-hitting mustachioed placeholder for injured Texas Ranger Jeff Houston looked an awful lot like Super Mario. My friends and I, therefore, made a sign with a picture of a gloved Super Mario for the bleachers at the old Arlington Stadium and camped out in shallow foul territory down the third baseline for several dozen home games. The sign said, of course, Super Mario Land, and Diaz hit his only home run that year, a late-inning come-from-behind shot that, if memory serves correctly, preserved an extended winning streak for the Rangers. Just on the other side of the foul pole, we were too stunned and cheering too hard to chase the ball down. So that's Mario Diaz. Um, another category, Stefan and Dan, that I noticed that came up a lot um, was athletes who were famous but within a very small niche within their particular sport. One nomination that we got was for Kane Waslinchuk, the best professional racquetball player in the history of sport. the sport. The divide between him and second place is even wider than, say, Tiger in his prime and the other golfers. In all the tournaments he played this year against the best competition in the world, not only did he not lose a match, he did not lose a game. Way to go, Kane. The other kinds of, of favorite athletes that leapt out at me are the ones that did one dramatic thing that solidified their reputations and gave them a probably a greater degree of fame than we are striving for here, or did something that runs counter to what we think most fans like about athletes. So there's sort of two categories. My friend Zeke nominated a few people. I uh, then put them on the spreadsheet here. And his favorites are guys that, like he mentioned Gary Howitt and Stan Jonathan, hockey players, for punching a lot of bigger guys. And I think that's a quality that, you know, definitely deserves merit. And I can see where a kid would like that. And there's also the repetition of smaller athletes throughout this. It's always little guys, whether it's Calvin Murphy, the basketball player, um, Bip Roberts, baseball player. But go down this list of however many submissions we had, 60 or 70. There's a lot of little guys on there. And I can relate to that. So, Dan, do you have any regrets about choosing Keith Miller as your favorite athlete. Were there any moments after he left the Mets where you felt like maybe this is not my guy anymore? I'm going to get on the uh, Tim Tuffle would start to speak to you more. <laughs> um, what what are kind of the darkest moments and what always kept you by Keith Miller's side? Greg Jeffries. Uh, Greg Jeffries was a dark moment. Um, there were a lot of things going on. So I was uh, going through puberty. The Mets <laughs> were going from being a good team to being a horrendous team. And Keith Miller was going from the Mets to the Royals. So those are three uh, three trends in, in my life in high school uh, that were all bad things. But I was really sad when he was traded. But that could have been, I mean, he could have been a big star and been traded. I don't think it was the fact that he was 
a scrappy utility and fielder and fielder that made that difficult. And yeah, I, I think I've always been glad about it. like I've always had an answer for who's your favorite baseball player, and it's always an answer that no one else has. Dan Ingber is a columnist for Slate and the world's only Keith Miller fan. Dan, thank you. And on behalf of Keith Miller, thank you. With five exclamation points. <laughs> Neato. I, had a, 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 I found an amazing article about Keith Miller that I wanted to share, but I think there's no time. It was just all the different Mets. It was after he had a game-winning home run off Rob Dibble in the 10th inning. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that in the bonus segment, Dan. Oh, okay. We'll be back. We'll be back with more Keith Miller in the bonus segment. But for now, thanks, Dan. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for After Balls, and we are going to make all of the segments come together here. Frank DeFord had a favorite athlete who was not famous, and it was Ethan Strauss's dog. Otto. Um, now, who is Frank DeFord's favorite athlete, Stefan? Oh, he wrote a piece DeFord did in 1978 called A Time for All Us Children, in which he takes his son Christian to spring training. And DeFord wrote, any kid who takes an interest in sports immediately designates a favorite player. The choice is often irrational, as in other affairs of the heart, but it requires neither apology nor explanation. A favorite player holds that estate because... He's my favorite player. Bill Russell, the great Boston Celtics center, used to argue with me that children had no business idolizing players. They should reserve such esteem for their own fathers, he said. I contended that it was a healthy sign for a kid to venerate some stranger who excels in the public arena. Somehow this extends a child, providing him with his first attachment to the larger family of the community. Like most boys, I had a favorite player. His name was Bob Repass and he played shortstop for the old minor league Baltimore Orioles. While I lived and died with Bob Repass, hey, Baba Repass, we shouted, I do not recall that he seriously diminished my devotion to my father. On the other hand, the heritage of Bob Repass still resides with me. He wore number six. To this day, it is my firm belief that six is my lucky number. Why? Because it is my lucky number. That's why. Because Bob Repass wore it when I was eight years old. That's good shit. Stefan. What is your Bob repass? Well, the finals of the college ultimate Frisbee championship were held on Sunday at a high school in Ohio. Dartmouth defeated Texas for the women's title. On the men's side, Carleton College first took out number one ranked Massachusetts. And my friend, UMass freshman Jake Radak, a former school Scrabble player, in the semifinals on Saturday. And then on Sunday, the cut of Carleton 
topped UNC Wilmington to take home the glory. ESPN showed the tournament. Early rounds were on the web. Finals were live on ESPNU. The grass field looked pretty sweet. No football or soccer lines. And the players pulled, hocked, flicked, and skied with some serious athletic ability. Ultimate isn't sanctioned by the NCAA, but according to USA Ultimate, the sports governing body, 14,000 students play on more than 700 college teams. Jake picked UMass in part because they had a great ultimate program. This is a long way from the dawn of college ultimate Frisbee more than 40 years ago, an era that is the subject of a new book called Ultimate Glory, Frisbee Obsession and My Wild Youth by David Gessner. I'm reading the book now. I'm really enjoying it. And we're planning to have Gessner come on the podcast next week. In the book, he describes the very first college ultimate game. It was played on November 6th, 1972, between Princeton and Rutgers. New Jersey was the epicenter of the early days of ultimate. Rules were codified, like the Naismith rules in basketball, at Columbia High School in Maplewood, New Jersey. A kid named Joel Silver, who would go on to produce The Matrix, Lethal Weapon, and other blockbusters, brought back a Frisbee football game from summer camp in Massachusetts in the late 1960s to New Jersey. As a goof, he got Columbia High School to sanction a varsity Frisbee team. A bunch of kids started playing, wrote up the rules. They took it to their colleges, and intercollegiate sport was born. The first game was held, not coincidentally, on the same day as the first intercollegiate football game, also between Rutgers and Princeton in 1869. On the same site, too. The only problem was that what was once a field was now a parking lot, didn't matter. A lot of early ultimate games were played on concrete or asphalt. The Frisbee pioneers were smart. They persuaded the New York Times to cover the game. WABC TV in New York City sent Jim Bouton, the former Yankee and Ball 4 author who was uh, covering sports for the channel. He did a 10-minute piece about the game. The Times in its coverage played it straight. Battle of the Frisbee is decided on the playing fields of Rutgers, the headline read. The Times said that a thousand people turned out to watch this. The paper noted that it was one-third the size of the audience for a Rutgers varsity football game a week before. The Times also noted that one thing occurred that intercollegiate football has not yet introduced a girl played. In his book, Gessner writes that the fans were ooing and eyeing when people made deep throws or skied for discs. Rutgers had a 6'6 grad student named Dan Roddick, and some fraternity guys kept shouting stork, stork, stork whenever he was involved in a play. The nickname stuck. That's how Roddick would be known when he went on to spread the gospel of ultimate at Whammo, the Frisbee maker, and as president of the World Flying Disc Federation. Here is Dan Roddick, the stork, talking about the afterglow of that first ultimate Frisbee game. And at the end of that game, and we just thought, this thing's, this thing's blowing up. I mean, we're going to be a Monday night ultimate by the end of the month. As it had done 103 years earlier, Rutgers won that first game by two points. The final score was 29 to 27. This year's college title game was, in fact, played on a Monday night. It was Monday afternoon, Monday evening. So Monday night ultimate has finally happened, Josh. Josh, what's your Bob repass? Here is an obituary from the UK newspaper, The Independent. The lead went as follows. Disgraced former Panamanian general Manuel Noriega was a ruthless dictator, domestic spook, convicted murderer, money launderer, big-time drug runner for Colombian cocaine drug lords, and a double agent between the CIA and Fidel Castro's Cuba. Stefan, what was wrong 
with that sentence about disgraced former Panamanian General Manuel Noriega, who died just now. It, it doesn't say what his favorite sport was. That, we'll get to that in a second, but it does not describe him as Panamanian strongman. Oh. Manuel Noriega, yeah. that is required by law that when you refer to Man- Manuel Noriega, he must be referred to as a Panamanian strongman. I looked in Fatsis-like fashion at the Oxford English Dictionary to see uh, the earliest uses of strongman with uh, the definition meaning a man who performs feats of physical strength, especially competitively. It goes back to 1699. The strong Kentish man gave three proofs of his extraordinary strength before his majesty. There's also the meaning a dominating man, the man who exercises effective control of an organization, a leader who exercises absolute political power, especially one who rules by threats, force, or violence. That's the Noriega-ish meaning. That goes back to 1764, Uh, the strong man of the division. Uh, Another more recent example, Mr. Obama warmly greeted Venezuelan strongman Hugo Chavez at the summit of the Americas. But Noriega is the strong man to end all strong men. He was the proto-strongman. He was referred to as a strong man in 1976 by the Associated Press. And so I wanted to know the question that I think has not been adequately answered is, how strong was Manuel Noriega? The answer is, I have no idea, because Googling how strong was Manuel Noriega did not reveal any answers. So I swerved off into another direction with this afterball, which is... um, The United States invasion of Panama, which happened in uh, December 89, January 1990, that's what led Noriega to be deposed. He was uh, eventually put on trial in the United States. And there were a couple of Panamanian athletes who were involved in that. Stefan, you must know Roberto Kelly, the uh, Panamanian-born player for Mm -hmm. uh, the New York Yankees. Um, I found a couple of pieces that mentioned that Noriega was a big baseball fan. It was a pretty popular sport in Panama. Roberto Kelly had a very good first year with the Yankees. He had 302. He probably became some New York kid's favorite player for life during that year. And uh, Noriega asked Kelly if he would meet up, just say like, you know, have a little summit, shoot the shit. Um, Kelly said, I told them I was busy. I didn't want to tell him it was because you are what you are. I didn't think it was good for the people to see me with him. He wasn't going to come to my house and shoot me just because I didn't want to meet with him. Luckily for me, he didn't use it against me. But fast forward to the invasion, the UPI wrote a piece uh, just after that said, Roberto Kelly nearly didn't make it to spring training and it had nothing to do with lockouts negotiations, or visa problems. Kelly, the center fielder, was in his native Panama during the U.S. invasion. A few days after the initial attack, Kelly was going to pick up his brother, who worked at the Canal Zone. Three thugs halted Kelly's car, demanded he get out, and one put a gun to his head. However, one of the thieves recognized Kelly, who became a national hero for his superb 1989 season, and said it was okay for him to continue. I was thinking hard about what I heard they were doing to people, Kelly recalled Thursday, his first day in Yankees camp. I was hoping they would just beat me and leave me to lay there. Fortunately, the guy recognized me. I'm grateful the guy knew something about sports. If he didn't, I wouldn't be here with you guys today. So who's the other 
really famous Panamanian athlete. There's Mariano Rivera, naturally. But the the big guy in that era was Roberto Roberto Duran. Hands of Stone, the boxer. Roberto Duran, huge fan of Manuel Noriega. Not surprised. So immediately after uh, the strongman was deposed, Duran told the UPI, the Panamanian people thought that with the ouster of Noriega, things would get better. Instead, it's practically worse. There's no safety on the streets or in restaurants, but fear of being attacked by armed robbers. Under Noriega, you did not see that. Duran uh, was a personal friend of Manuel Noriega. There's a recent interview with Duran in the Times of India where it says that legend has it that the boxer wanted to fist fight the invaders who deposed Noriega. They asked Duran about it, the Times of India. His response was, I didn't want to punch them. I wanted to shoot them. Reasonable. Uh, The story ends by noting Durant recently reported that he would like to fight U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump. That, Stefan, is our show for today. Our producer was Dan Bloom filling in for Patrick Fort. And the credits this week, for those of you who stuck around this long, I'm going to make a single call to action. And that call is please subscribe to our show in iTunes. It is called Hang Up and Listen. If you do that, um, it'll really help us out in the all-important iTunes rankings. And what'll help us out even more is leaving us a rating and a comment, and that will encourage other people to try the show. You can find us and you can do all that other stuff by going to itunes.com slash podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. 